What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today is Hannah Moshebek to discuss her new book, Homeland, My Father Dreams of Palestine. Hannah Moshebek is a second-generation Palestinian-American author, editor, and book marketer who was raised in a family of publishers and booksellers in Western Massachusetts and England. Born in Brooklyn into Interleague Publishing, a family-run independent publishing house, she learned the power of literature at a young age. She is the author of Homeland, My Father Dreams of Palestine. Chronicle Books, March 2023 was its release. She lives in Amherst, Massachusetts, on the homelands of the Pecumtuck and Nipmuc nations. Let's get to talking about you and this book. It is absolutely beautiful. Um, the illustrations by Rima Du are gorgeous. How did the two of you team up? Well, I got very lucky um, with my publisher, Chronicle Books. Not a lot of publishers in the industry really let authors have an influence on who their illustrators are. But um, in this journey, I was really lucky that they reached out. They asked for my advice. Um, We really wanted it to be someone who understood Arab culture, was from the Middle East, and someone who was Muslim as well. Because as a Christian Palestinian, I wanted to make sure that the book felt like a safe space for Muslims and Christians uh, and atheists and, you know, anyone in between. So um, I was very lucky to be partnered with her early on. She is an artist who lives in Kuwait. So all of our communication was done online. Wow. Um, Talk about well, you were raised in a, in, in a home of publishers, et cetera, but this is a resistance book. This is a resistance book for children, um, I think. I don't know if that's how you look at it, but um, it looks like a movement, feels like a movement book to me, yeah. particularly about Palestine in a country um, whose government at least supports the violence of Israel. Um, and we definitely have that divide here is it difficult to get this kind of material published? And if so, or if not, what is that journey like? Or what conversations were had that may not have been had if you were, you know, were writing a book about Little Ben Goes to the Mailbox? Yeah, so the erasure and censorship of Palestinian writers in the U.S. has been well documented um, and is certainly something that Um, my family knows about. When my parents moved here in the 1970s, um, they started a publishing press because they wanted to make sure that they were amplifying Middle Eastern and Palestinian voices um, almost from the year that I was born. So I really grew up understanding this. And as I, you know, started to work in publishing companies that were not my family's um, and had a solid career under my feet, you know, I really joined the We Need Diverse Books movement in children's literature that is the sort of rallying cry of educators, booksellers, um, authors, writers, writers and publishing professionals to publish more diversely. So being in the center of this conversation, you know, I couldn't help but bring up the erasure of the existence of Palestinians, particularly from children's literature. Growing up, I had one example of a book, uh, City Secrets by Naomi Shihab Nye, uh, who's an incredible uh, Palestinian poet and author of children's books. 
And that was it. That book was published in 1994. And so, you know, during my 10 years in the publishing industry, I was constantly looking and hoping to see more children's book by Palestinians until I sort of had to take it into my own hands. And the publishing world in itself is brutal, right? Like for 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 anybody and raising funds and, and being able to stay alive financially. Um, I imagine that's compounded when you're writing these kinds of really critical um, stories. Yeah, I mean, I think any publisher will tell you that they are half in it um, for the profit and half in it for the cause. I think that there's a lot of weighing that has to be done when you decide to publish a book on whether or not this is going to sell enough copies to justify itself. You know, at my family's publisher, Interlink Publishing, which is a small radical press, that is a conversation that happens every single day because, you know, we would love to be publishing only the books that we really care about. We have to be able to financially justify them. But I would argue that um, Palestinian literature, you know, is incredibly um, profitable just because, you know, the Palestinian question, as it were, is in the media all the time. It's something that I was exposed to as a child when my parents would turn on the news and I would see, you know, violent imagery on the TV depicting Palestinians. So, you know, when we have, uh, you know, this conversation happening in the zeitgeist, it's very important that we're hearing from the people who it affects directly. And that was really my hope with this book, that um, Palestinian children like me could actually start to identify the positives, the beauty of their culture, without just seeing a wash of sort of news headlines. That's actually a great segue to my next question, and it was triggered by something um, you've talked about a couple of times uh, already, and that's, you know, growing up in a home where these types of political conversations are happening. And um, so from from your being a young child, right, understanding uh, what was happening in your family's homeland, you know, I'm, I'm a freedom fighter, and I raised my child in a political home also, and she's 17 now and I have these thoughts and conversations with her, right. About like, what would I expose you to? Did it happen too early? How did this impact mm-hmm. you? What are the, what are, what are the, what are the good parts of that? What are the bad parts of that? Mm-hmm. And so I guess my, not bad. Um, what were the impacts, you know, consequences? Um, and I, so I have two questions for you. One, how did that impact you and, and shape who you became today? And two, with that in mind and your lived experience, what are those, what is the thought process or the creative process for writing these kinds of books and having these kinds of conversations with young people? Yeah, these are, thank you. These are really great questions. Um, you know, growing up, um, my family, I think, was largely still traumatized by the events of their past. And so we didn't have a ton of nuanced conversations about the history of Palestine, about why my family was forced to leave. So, you know, as a child, I I grew up with just sort of bits of information that I could get from different family members or from stories that were being told or snippets of conversations that I heard. Of course, we went to protests when I was younger, but I didn't quite understand, you know, what we were protesting or why we were protesting. So as I grew older, I, I really, you know, 
so much of my identity was was crafted around my upbringing, but also exploring my culture. You know, I grew up in um, a town in Western Massachusetts where we're one of the only Arab families. Mm. And so being able to you know, explore my Palestinian heritage was so important to me that I was just, I was thirsty for knowledge. I was thirsty to read books, to listen to music, um, to watch films um, that were by other Palestinians. Um, So that, you know, really was something that I think in the next generation, both my sisters have kids and they're already having conversations with their children who are, you know, three, four, five, about what it means to be a Palestinian, um, the importance for preserving our culture and our heritage. You know, this story really is about celebrating the intergenerational joy that comes from being Palestinian. I think that, you know, we have a lot of conversations about intergenerational trauma, which of course is very important, but I really wanted to show that there is so much joy in Palestinian culture and that's not something that a light is shown on very often. So as an author, right, as a creator of these stories with that lived experience, How does that impact your creative process, your choice of words, and having conversations uh, with young people? Yeah, so I want to say two things about this. First is that in my day job as a marketer and having worked in publishing for 10 years, I've worked on some really incredible books that deeply inspired me. Um, One of them is called This Book is Anti-Racist by Tiffany Jewell, who's an educator. And she taught me so much about um, developmental markers in a child's life and where it is appropriate to talk about different historical topics. You know, my partner is also a preschool teacher, and this book is targeted at the ages of five to eight. Um, So we had a lot of conversations about what do children understand at that age that we can discuss but also won't traumatize them. You know, I re- I really don't want to be introducing concepts, um, you know, like apartheid or like genocide to a child <laughs> that has no historical context for that. So um, in talking to my partner, we we basically narrowed down the basic concepts in the book that children do understand and are learning a lot about. You know, what is sharing? Why is it important that important that we share what is fair and what is not fair that's happening uh, in this situation, you know, how uh, families are displaced and and what we think should happen to those families. Should we support them? Should we welcome them? You know, or should we send them away, send them somewhere else? So these are all sort of basic concepts that I think children can uh, apply my story and my family's story to that will help them build a foundation so that when they are ready to learn more and parents are ready to introduce them to other history and, and context when they grow, they'll have a really great, strong foundation. My daughter used to say when she was young, she used to complain. She'd be like, why do I got to go to school twice? Because she would go to, you know, <laughs> she would go to the school that I'm like legally required to send her to, right? And then she'd come home right. and then we're like, all right, tell me what you learned today and how do I adjust your education? And those were the types of books, like this is a book I would have had in my home for my mm, kid, you know, you. Um, be like, what you learned about what today? Oh, okay, here, <laughs> read this. Um, and then let's have a conversation about it. I mean, it's important, you know, that we start folks at a young age. You, um, 
Hannah uh, have said a couple times, which is why I'm segueing to this, you know, your family's own history. And I'm wondering if you uh, would be open to telling your family's Nakba story. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so uh, in 1948, when um, the majority of Palestinians were were forced out of Palestine, you know, around a million, um, my family was part of that. Um, we grew up, they lived in the Katamon neighborhood in East Jerusalem, where um, they have lived for hundreds of years. We, we actually can't trace back that far how many generations um, have lived there. They had a beautiful farm. Um, and this neighborhood was known for artists and musicians and intellectuals. Um, it was sort of, you know, considered, uh, you know, almost like the, um, you know, uh, you know, the Latin Quarter in Paris or something. It was a very, it was a very well-known artistic community. Um, and they were actually warned by a neighbor that there would be danger for them. So they packed up small bags. Um, they jumped into my grandfather's car um, and they went to take sanctuary in a church in East Jerusalem in the quarter, the Greek Orthodox quarter, um, which my family is. So um, unfortunately, after that, they were never able to return to their homes. Um, you know, I had family members who you know, everyone had to leave, essentially. I had family members who moved to Chile. I have family members who moved to Europe. I have family members who live in um, Amman, Jordan, in Beirut, in Lebanon, uh, Canada, California. We scattered all over the world, still carrying with them the keys to their houses that many of them still have today that really has become a symbol for the right to return movement in Palestine. And I know uh, my listeners um, are, are supporters of Palestinian resistance, but I, I never want to just talk inside baseball. If you could talk about what the right to return campaign is. Yeah. So, you know, so many Palestinians um, have been forced to leave. While um, Israel offers uh, citizenship to anyone who mm -hmm. um, is of Jewish faith, uh, and and this is something that um, you know is juxtaposed by the fact that so many Palestinians still want to visit um, and return home to their ancestral homelands, and that's the basis for um, the argument for the right to return is that we would have free movement um, and the ability to return and have sanctuary um, in our homelands. And, you know, there, I think there's lots of schools of thought about how that could happen. Um, but, you know, I think the basic concept is really important, which is, you know, essentially akin to the land back movement. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Hannah Mushabek, whose latest book is Homeland, My Father Dreams of Palestine. Hannah, um, you also mentioned that growing up, you were the only Arab family in your community. What was that like? You know, it was interesting. Um, you know, I, <laughs> <laughs> I 
grew, I, I live uh, now and grew up in a very progressive part of Western Massachusetts. Um, so one of my first takeaways when we moved here from Brooklyn, New York, was that, um, you know, every Jewish family in town wanted to invite us to their Seder meals. It was like, you know, like, you know, it's everyone not us. To, it's not us. Exactly. They really wanted to show how progressive they were, that they had Palestinian friends. Um, there was... You know, I, I would like to say my parents did a really great job of sort of shielding us from any um, discrimination that we might have faced. There were a few incidences in schools where, you know, um, one, for example, in the fourth grade when we were asked to uh, illustrate the flags of our ancestors. And I, as a nine-year-old, could not find the Palestinian flag in the history book. And my teacher suggested I put the Israeli flag instead. Yeah. Which, as you can imagine, when I proudly came home um, with my painting of the Israeli flag, that it was quite triggering um, for my family member. And something that, you know, the school and uh, to their credit took very seriously, which I very much appreciate. Um, But I also think that there you know, growing up in a town of mostly white um, liberal intellectuals, um, there was a lot of uh, tokenizing that happened. And, um, you know, my father's also a musician. So, you know, he also has like an entire um, sort of groupy group of uh, folks who like to belly dance and things like that. You know, I think (laughs) in a lot of ways. There's so much in common with the Palestinian and the black (laughs) experience. Right. Right. So, you know, I think in many ways it was supportive um, and in some ways it was very othering and and certainly made me feel ostracized from my own culture. Um, And it wasn't until I, you know, went to college and uh, started seeking out other Arab Americans that I really found a community. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to shift directions here just a little bit. Um you grew up in a family of storytellers, of publishers. That's right. That like that alone brings me joy. Like I can just imagine what that kind of home must have been like and I I would love for you to just spend some time talking about what it's like growing up as a kid in a home full of storytellers and storytelling. Yeah. So when my parents moved here in the 1970s, um, you know, my dad did what a lot of hopeful authors would do, which is that he wrote a book um, about the Gulf War and he tried to get it published and nobody was interested in publishing it. So he decided that he would publish it himself. And that is how my parents started Interlink Publishing which has just celebrated their 36th year in business. And it's, it's incredible. They, um, you know, they moved here and they saw a real lack of representation about anything to do with Middle Eastern culture that didn't have to do with war or politics. You know, um, 
you know, we would argue that some of the best literature in the world has come out of the Middle East. And yet the amount of books that are translated from Arabic to English and published in the U.S. is is minuscule compared to some other countries like, you know, Sweden or France, um, where they have an incredible literature and translation pipeline to the U.S. So there was a, a real need and continues to be a real need um, for access to Arab culture. Um, so that's how, uh, you know, a lot of my childhood played out because we were a small radical press. It meant that when someone published an author and was going on book tour, they were staying in our house. We were all going in the car from event to event. My mom was cooking the food for every event. You know, when we published our first cookbook, it meant that we were, my mom was making every single dish in that cookbook and we were having a photo shoot on the floor. Um, both my aunt and uncle also went into books. Um, my aunt owns a children's bookstore and toy store in Montreal. And my uncle owned an independent bookstore, um, here as well in Massachusetts. And, you know, indie publishing, indie books has been my world for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, I was the kid playing under the booth at like the conferences, you know, <laughs> whose feet would stick out under the tablecloth. Um, so that was a lot of my upbringing, you know, author events, um, book conferences, bookshops, alphabetizing things. It was a really, it was very glorious and, and clearly influenced me um, as I now am also in the industry. The, the book is called My Father Dream, uh, Homeland, My Father Dreams of Palestine. You've mentioned your father a few times, and I just wonder if you say a bit more about him and your relationship. Yeah. Um, you know, I think for him, a lot of the time, um, it's painful for him to talk about um, Palestine. You know, it it is something that never leaves his mind very often. And we were, as young children, instilled in us that it was our responsibility to educate our friends, to educate our colleagues, um, to use our voices and the privilege that we have as Americans and as white presenting Americans to share the humanity of Palestinians. Um, and that's something, you know, that's heavy as a child to feel on your shoulders, but something that has never left me or my sisters and has influenced everything that we have done in our lives. Um, you know, my father, his, our family was made refugees, not once um, when the Nakba happened, but then again, after they fled to Lebanon and the civil war broke out. So he has had to flee um, and been citizenshipless um, for much of his life. And I think that that has really stayed with him. Um, after, you know, immigrating to the U.S. and having a family and starting a company, you know, it's been so important for him that we don't just assimilate and we don't just sort of live with ease and privilege now that we've achieved it, but that we really dedicate our skills and our talents um, to helping those who are still back home. Has he ever gone back to Palestine? He has not been since he was 11 years old. Um, 
there have been numerous occasions when he has tried, um, but his vocation and his activism, I think, has been one of the reasons why he has not been allowed to gain entry. Um, there was an amazing um, Israeli documentarian who made a documentary about the Katamon neighborhood that my family is from. And she actually took um, us on FaceTime, <laughs> took my father on FaceTime to show him um, our family's house, which was incredible and emotional and unfortunately was cut short um you know, by um, people not letting them, being angry about them filming, but um, that's as close as he's ever gotten. What about you? Have you been? I haven't been, no. Um, it's something that I have always wanted to do and something that I plan to do. Um, I sort of scheduled several trips that ended up being canceled. Um, my sister went and volunteered um, in Janine at a refugee camp. Um, and she said it was an incredibly transformative experience, um, but also that the best thing that we could do is really change hearts and minds here where so much of our tax dollars are being used in military aid. All right. Well, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but um, might as well jump into it now. You know, <laughs> here in the United States, it, it doesn't matter if there's a Democrat or Republican in office support for is, Israel remains firm to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, we're heading into the next presidential election season where there's going to be at least two really, really right conservative folks, but also other people seeking the seat. What are the opportunities for conversations about Palestine that you, that you see inside of the electoral process? And then part two of that question is, what does solidarity actually look like here? to create an echo chamber loud enough to penetrate, right, the 24-hour soundbite cycle of so-called news about Palestine and Israel? Oh, boy. Mm. <laughs> These are, you know, I, I first have to say that I think that there are certainly people out there more qualified than I to speak to this, but I, I thank you for asking it. You know, I think it's very easy to feel discouraged about um, the fate of Palestine and about American politics hand in uh, funding Israel. You know, for as long as I have been alive, this has been going on. And I think, uh, you know, many folks have been getting tired and feeling disheartened. But I have to quote um, a incredible um, activist, Phyllis Bennis, who uh, is an author and works at the International um, Study of Foreign Policy in DC. When, you know, I sat with her after dinner one night and just felt completely lost and said, you know, we're never going to wake up. We're never going to wake up the politicians. We're never going to wake up middle America. People are never going to see why it's so wrong that we're donating millions and millions of dollars um, to harm people. And she said, just think of apartheid South Africa. That changed because of the boycotts and because of the grassroots activism that had been happening for decades. And it really gave me hope. And I think that that's another reason why um, people really like to compare um, South African apartheid with Israeli apartheid. Um, I think it gives people hope that change will come and that we will finally start to see fruits of our labor. 
I do have to say that we owe so much to the Black Lives Matter movement, particularly in 2020, because as we saw this movement sort of ignite um, awareness for a lot of people around the country and around the world, we found that when they believed in true anti-racism and they believed in systematic injustice, then they couldn't look away from what is happening in Palestine and see it for anything other than state-sanctioned violence and oppression. So I think using that framework, certainly the American public has started to to wake up. I think this newest generation has been more hopeful than ever. And I can't help but feel like we are just around the corner of it being no longer acceptable to support giving military aid to Israel. In politics, in public, you know, that I really do. I really feel hopeful that it is right around the corner for us. Thank you for that. And you actually answered a question I was going to going to ask you to reflect on, and that is the criticalness, the importance of Black Palestinian solidarity That's right, right. In, in, in both of our liberatory struggles. Um, and your answer segues me to the next question, which is, you know, it's something that I watch with um, tears in my eyes often. Um, Palestinians live under constant violence, right, or the threat of violence, That's yet right. they continue to resist and organize in like beautiful and incredible ways. Mm. Um, Israeli forces, despite their efforts, can't break the spirit of Palestinians. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about that spirit. Yeah, you know, it's something that I feel was handed down to me by my ancestors and is something that I see you know, in my cousins and my aunts and my uncle and my father and other Palestinians, um, you know, I, you know, I, I do feel that, you know, there's people being oppressed all over the world and we have seen, you know, just unbelievable historic uh, discrimination, but Palestinians have endured so much and stayed so true to the the belief that they have a right to exist, that even in the diaspora, even generations later, that there is a hope that we will be able to return one day. And, you know, I don't know where it comes from. I think if you ask, you know, my Teta or my or my father, there's like something about the enduring spirits of Arabs that, um, you know, anchor our resilience. But what really, does that feel I, like inside of your person, <laughs> that spirit? You, you know, it? it's it's so interesting because I think that my book was an answer to that question. Mm. You know, writing about a place that I have never been and how much love I have for this place that really, like, apart from what I've been able to scrape from the Palestinians that I know and the people in my family, you know, I don't have a huge connection to, but I so deeply feel this love and devotion to a homeland, you know, that was really taken away from us. And I think that that's something, you know, universally, whenever I speak to other Palestinians, that's what they say they feel. You know, I think even to some extent, a lot of Arabs, even non-Palestinians feel there's something about Palestine that is so special. Um, 
And I don't know that I can put my finger on it. And I would mm. like to say, you know, it's, it's in our blood, but really, um, you know, I just think that like Palestinians are a beautiful peach people. And, um, I think, you know, we will see the, the, we will see the change come and, and there will be a time for celebrating. But in the meantime, I think, you know, we'll soldier on. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Hannah Mushabek, who has a new book out, Homeland, My Father Dreams of Palestine. All right, let's 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 talk about the actual book. Um, <laughs> what was your inspiration for writing it? You know, I have been, I mean, my entire career, I have been, you know, searching for and trying to advocate for Palestinian writers. You know, it's something that, um, if ever an acquisition came through my department that was about Palestine, um, it would be something that I spoke <laughs> and supported as much as I could internally. Um, a year ago, I started a group called Palestinians and Kid Lit, which helps prospective authors um you know, submit to publishers and to help them market their books once they get publishing deals. Um, you know, it's in writing this book, I was actually searching for another author to write it. I wanted a picture book about Palestine. I knew what I wanted the story to be. I just didn't consider myself qualified enough to write it. Um, and after a conversation with my friend, who's an editor, she wrote, you know, Hannah, you've you've written the whole synopsis of this book. You've already figured out, you know, what you want the title to be and you're looking for someone to write this. Have you ever considered writing it yourself? Um, you know, and I think like a lot of us, I had imposter syndrome. And so I just gave it a try. Um, you know, my, my family, like I said, are storytellers and, and most of our storytelling is, is oral and it's very, different to write things on a page. Um, but once I did it, it, it just felt really, uh, it felt really right. And it felt very cathartic to be able to tell my story. And then once, you know, I held the book in my hand, it was an incredible experience. Um, the end pages of the book, for example, are illustrations of photographs that we have. So, you know, we don't have a ton of photographs. People left Palestine with so little, but we have a few. And when you open the book, what you're faced with is photographs of my family from as early as the 1800s until, you know, 1948, when we left Palestine, they're all in black and white. And when you flip to the back of the book, it is my family living in the diaspora. Um, all the photos are in color and they, they're photos of me. And, you know, when my mom was pregnant in New York and um, my sisters and I, and now, you know, my sister's kids who were there and my father now, um, it was so deeply personal and healing to see, to literally see um, my family story in a book. As you were talking, I was doing just that, flipping uh, from the front <laughs> to the back. I wondered if the pictures in the it were of your actual family. Yeah. Um, given everything that you just said, can you talk about the ups and downs of the process of doing the actual writing? 
Yeah, I think people think when you write a children's book that it's going to be very easy because it's short. Um, but it's because of that that it's actually a lot harder, I would argue. Um, you know, you really have to make sure that the language that you use is going to be understood by your reader. So traditionally in picture books, they discourage you from having an unreliable narrator. And an example of this would be how my father is telling us the story instead of us uh, sharing our own stories and our own experiences. It puts distance between the reader. And I broke this rule rather intentionally and was something that my editor actually really encouraged me to do because my family was ex exiled and displaced. We put this artificial distance between the reader and the protagonist because I myself, the storyteller, have that distance. I was never able to experience the things that my father experienced as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem. So in writing this book, I had to break a few uh, key rules that I was always taught never to break, but I think it's really important for um, the effect of the story. Another thing in writing this book that was really interesting to me is that I decided to omit my family's true Nakba story. I did not want um, this book to be a traumatic one. I wanted it to be a celebration. I think that there are quite a few books out there that um, discuss hard topics, that talk about families who have, who are refugees who have had to flood, and they do it very well. And that's not what I wanted to do with this book. You know, the amount of times in my life where people have been thirsty for my trauma um, to sort of revel in it and and to pity me. I didn't want that for this book. I wanted this book to be written for Palestinians, but also for anyone to read and understand how beautiful Palestinian culture is. I also wanted other Palestinian Americans to read this with their children and insert their own family story into it so they could really see themselves as well. And without giving up too much, because we want folks to open up the yes. pages of the books, uh, <laughs> give us a, your, your synopsis of Homeland, My Father, James of Palestine. Yeah, so this book is about three little girls who are waiting for their father to get home because right at bedtime, he tells them incredible stories. And the stories that they like the most are about his homeland of Palestine. So he tells them the story about his last day in Palestine, where he walks with his grandfather through the streets of Jerusalem and visits the family's cafe. Um, it talks about music and food and art and culture that you would know if you had grown up in in this time period in Jerusalem. Um, and it's something that these girls savor and then bring back with them into their life in the U.S. Hannah, you talked about it a little bit, but I'd like you to, to reiterate, what is your hope for this book as it makes its way through the world? I think my first hope is that Palestinian families will find it and feel seen. Um, I think my rather aspirational second hope would be that non-Palestinians read this and are encouraged to learn more about Palestinian history and culture and the ways in which 
we as Americans are contributing to their oppression. What about backlash? Have you experienced any? Have you experienced that as you and your family have been publishing um, stories about Palestine for these last few decades? We have. It is uh, not always easy to be a Palestinian (laughs) in America. Um, You know, (laughs) a lot of the time we, you know, we receive uh, what they call is shadow banning, which is people removing our books from bookshelves intentionally. Um, You know, a lot of the time uh, trolls will go online and not having read the book, they will give it one star reviews to try to influence um, the various algorithms so that the books don't get seen or heard. Um, You know, there have been times when it's been very extreme when, you know, the office phone line gets, you know, death threats and scary things. Um, But I think that that's par for the course as being someone who's outspoken um, as a public person on the internet. Um, This book doesn't come out for another month, so I haven't quite received anything yet. And I am really hoping that people will read it and see that there's nothing controversial about this book. There's nothing controversial about my story. It is simply me telling my truth and the story of my ancestors. Talk just generally about art as resistance. Yeah. You know, I think as um, someone who is a survivor and someone whose family was displaced, you know, I have a lot of guilt about not doing enough and not being a full-time activist. And, you know, someone said to me once that it doesn't matter, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to dedicate your life to activism in the way that everybody thinks of a traditional activist. Like if you're not the person who's going to be on the bullhorn in the protest, that's okay. In fact, what you should do is you should take your talents and you should take what you are good at and what you are passionate about, and you should channel your activism into that. And I really appreciated that because I am not the bullhorn at the front of the protest person. I am the writing quietly in my office uh, late at night person. And so I really think that whatever you do in the world and whatever your talent is, that there are ways in which you can bring your own beliefs into that. And so I think that's where we get a lot of incredible activism through art. I could not agree more. Hannah Moshebeck, thank you so much for this conversation and for joining us on Lawn Disorder today. Thank you so much, Kat. This is wonderful. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.